0: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today we'll be speaking with Nabil Matar, a prolific author and professor of English at the University of Minnesota. In Henry Stubb and the Beginnings of Islam, the Original and progress of Mohammedanism, published by Columbia University Press in 2014, Nabil Matar masterfully edits an important piece of scholarship from 17th century England by scholar and physician Henry Stubb. Matar also gives a substantial introduction to his annotated edition of Stubb's text by situating the author in his historical context. Unlike other early modern writers on Islam, Stubb's ostensible goals were not to cast Islam in a negative light. On the contrary, He sought to challenge popular conceptions that understood Islam in negative terms, and although there is no evidence that Stubb entertained conversion to Islam, he admits many admirable characteristics of Islam, ranging from Muhammad's character to the unity of God. The English polymath was well-versed in theological debates of his time, and therefore equipped all the more to write the original, given the benefit of his comparative framework which in part explains why the first portion of his text devotes itself to the history of early Christianity. Strikingly, however, it seems that Stubb never learned Arabic, even though he studied religion with a leading Arabist of his time, Edward Pocock. Indeed, one novelty of Stubb's work was precisely his re-evaluation of Latin translations of primary sources that were already in circulation. Stubb's contributions to scholarship also speak to the history of Orientalism, a word that did not yet exist at Stubb's time, or how scholars in the West more broadly have approached Islam. Stubb's original offers insights into present-day Western discourses that still struggle, at times with egregious incompetence, to make sense of Islam and Muslims. In this regard, Matar's detailed scholarly account of Henry Stubb and his carefully edited version of the original remains as timely as ever. Undoubtedly, this meticulously researched book will interest an array of scholars, including those from disciplines of English literature, history, and religious studies. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Nabil Matar. Welcome, Nabil. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Okay. So before we get started talking about your incredibly fascinating um, book, could you tell us a little bit how you became interested in the topic as well as a little bit about your educational background in general?
1: Well, educational background, I did a B.A. and an M.A. in English at the American University in Beirut and then did my Ph.D. at Cambridge University. And then, you know, I taught at the University of Jordan, University of Beirut, American University of Beirut, uh, Florida Institute of Technology. And then six years ago, I came up here to University of Minnesota. And uh, Henry Stubb was kind of a text I read years ago. And he became important to me when I actually was teaching the very first course at the university here. It was a graduate course with really a group of wonderful and very, very talented students. And, you know, we got to reading because it was a course about Britain and the Islamic Mediterranean. And I had included the only edition that was available of that text, which was an edition published in 1911, so just about 100 years ago. And these students were really very good because they started asking questions and they were very good in terms of their kind of historical and theological background two of them were very well-trained in theology. And so they were asking questions about which I couldn't really answer from the framework of the text in front of me. And so I thought, you know, there must be something wrong about that. And so the next time I was in London, I decided to, you know, look at the manuscripts, because there are a number of manuscripts of that, uh, of that uh, book. And then I realized that basically there are different manuscripts, and that the edition we had been using was a manuscript that had basically com- combined the original manuscript by Henry Stubb, plus editions uh, that were later introduced into the text, plus the kind of editorial emendations and changes that were introduced by the actual editor in 1911. So the book was really the one that was available, the one that we had read, and the one that kind of sometimes makes sense had a lot of kind of differences within it. So I decided that it's time for me to kind of, uh, you know, make a proper edition, prepare a proper edition of the book by consulting the earliest manuscript available, other manuscripts that were there, kind of make sure that I can be able to compare them and, you know, introduce a proper scholarly apparatus into the study. And so that's how it started. and Then it became even more fascinating when I started asking the question as to, you know, why did this very, very obscure man, whom nobody seemed to have liked in his own lifetime, uh-huh. uh, why did he write this book? Because nothing else in his career, he was a, he wrote a lot, I mean, he was a very active writer, but very pugnacious, always fighting with people, and writing texts to attack or defend certain positions, but it had nothing, nothing to do with kind of religious history or Islam, I mean, and so, you know, it became a big question as, you know, why did he do that? And second of all, more importantly, more kind of perhaps interestingly, is how could he do that? I mean, why is it that he then becomes the first European to write an account of the rise of the storm, the beginning of the storm, in a tone that was completely absent from anybody else before him, and indeed for quite a long time after him. So that's how it started. And, you know, I'm not working on it. It became quite... Uh, you know, quite an involved project because it entailed going to England and kind of working with the manuscripts and then getting copies. And finally, it, it you know, it was finished. So I was very pleased with that.
0: And so I, I know that we'll, we'll talk more about why Henry Stubb was an unusual person and how he stood out in his life and afterwards. But could you also say something about your own disciplinary context in terms of, your research interests, but also working in the English department, do you find that that presents particular challenges or opportunities?
1: Uh, You know, I mean, my training was in a very, very traditional discipline of English before the advent of theory. So, you know, I finished my doctorate in 1976, and, you know, then you did very, very traditional studies. And so I was trained in basic 17th century English poetry. I mean, I wrote my dissertation on an Anglican poet of actually contemporary of who Thomas Trahan, uh, although they never knew each other. So my training was very, very English. And yet it was always steeped in history. And because at the time I was doing my PhD, the kind of dwayne of 17th century studies was the famous historian, Christopher Hill, at, uh, at Oxford. And, you know, we used to go and attend his lectures and, you know, the man was bringing out books, you know, on a regular basis. And he had, you know, produced an introduction to 17th century studies and particularly British history in terms of a, you know, a Marxist interpretation, which means a very kind of historiographical text or study of a historiographical text to situate uh, all the material that he studied within the context of 17th century society, theology, religious changes, you know, class conflicts. And so, you know, I was looking at English poetry with that kind of angle. And although I was working on, a, as I said, a kind of a, an Anglican mystic, uh, I wanted to see to what extent he was still part of a historical period in early modern Britain. And so basically I've always been you know i always com- i 've always combined uh, history and English English and history. I studied as together i can 't see them as totally separate from each other and uh, my own, my other interest has always been uh, religious studies and theology actually, I wanted to you know to major in theology, but then i didn 't so you know, I've always had that interest as well—Christian, Islamic theologies. So, you know, they all came together actually in the study of Stub and other works i you know, other books I've written. Uh, so, I don't see any difficulty with the disciplines. I see that very enriching in terms of bringing them together. Uh, I still believe in kind of staying with the text and working from the text on. So that's a very, very kind of basic premise. But then to see what you can bring to the text in terms of historical, uh, you know, social or political context that could help us understand further the text itself. So disciplines are together. And, uh, you know, English now has become such an open field in terms of its its self-understanding and I think I'm just part of that openness that has been going on for the past, I would say, more than quarter of a century.
0: Sure. And <laughs> in, in, in the opening part of your book, I think you do a, a really good job of contextualizing Henry Stubbs' historical moment and the types of debates and intellectual projects that were taking place in that time. It helps the, the reader get a sense of what's going on. And so in, in that regard, could, could you tell us a little bit about who Henry Stubb was and what made him stand out and why he's of particular interest today.
1: Uh, he was a physician. He was born in 1632. His mother, you know, was widowed at the early stage, and then fled to Ireland. Uh, so he grew up a little bit there in Ireland, then fled back to England after the revolt in Ireland in 1640, uh, went to Oxford, and I think that was perhaps the most important point in his life that he went to Christchurch, Oxford where there was the most distinguished kind of Arabist Hebraist. I mean the term Orientalist did not yet kind of come into focus or into use but uh, uh, he was, you know he became a pupil of Edward Pocock and Edward Pocock was you know the first collector of Arabic manuscripts. He occupies the first chair of Arabic at the University of Oxford. So he became his pupil, and I'm sure he was deeply interested, deeply kind of influenced by him. And then he stayed at Oxford for a while, and then kind of uh, when he left after 1660, you know, he took up the profession of medicine. You know, in those days, you didn't have to study that much. You had to qualify at a certain rate. So he became a doctor, and, uh, but he was still writing all the time. He started writing from the mid-1650s until his very death in 1676. Uh, uh, in terms of, you know, the kind of character he was, I said he was kind of always fighting people. He, nobody liked him. You know, even you go to the cathedral where he's supposed to have been buried, and there is no marker for him at all. Uh, there's no record of him, although, I mean, contemporaneously, there was mention that he was buried in the cathedral in, in Bath. Uh, so that was part of my fascination with him, as you know, I was reading his other stuff, which was rather tedious and boring. Sometimes he's defending Thomas Hobbes. He admired very much Thomas Hobbes, sometimes, and that was one of his kind of uh, fixations of attacking the Royal Society, you know, extensively against the, against the Royal Society. He thought they were just kind of abusing uh, modern science. I mean, he was himself a scientist. He he was a physician. He experimented. But he didn't like their approach to modern science. And suddenly, he kind of writes this book, uh, which he never published in his own lifetime. It kind of, there are references to it. People were reading it. People were kind of taking passages from it, uh, you know, after his death. But it just, and they were copying it. There are at least five, complete copies of the text, although, you know, as, were, as was common in those days, everybody who copied, you know, added points and observations so that as you go down the time, the time span, you find that there are more and more additions and, and further material that was not there in the original. So uh, until, as I said, until it was, it was edited and published in 1911. So why he did that was, to me, quite fascinating. And, as I say, how he came about to do that was a big question. And part of the answer I'm giving is that it was under the influence of Edward Pocock, that he became so, you know, he so admired him, and Pocock was, you know, a very traditional scholar in the sense of bringing these manuscripts, reading them, and trying to bring into the English, through Latin, of course, he wasn't writing in, in English at the time, but through Latin, to bring in of solid, accurate information about the history of Islam, rather than the kind of material that was there, which was kind of derivative, which was often, indeed, nearly always bigoted, misinformed, and inaccurate. So here was the beginning of a scholarly approach to the study of Islam by Edward Pocock, and uh, you know, Stubb is a student, his pupil, and in my view, he he kind of did the same thing. He went through kind of the material that uh, Pocock had published and that other Orientalist on the continent published, so he was working basically with Latin sources based on Arabic sources that attempted to explain and define Islam according to Islamic sources, Arab Islamic sources, rather than according to Greek and Roman uh, traditions. So that's where I think you know his originality came: is that he was willing to write in English an account about the beginnings of Islam based on Arabic material, uh, which was available to him in Latin because he himself never learned
0: Arabic. So can I ask you a question about terminology? You mentioned that uh, the term Orientalism didn't exist in the 17th century, but could you also say something about what it means to publish something and how that might differ from contemporary conceptions of that and what it means that the original wasn't published during Henry Stubbs' lifetime?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you wrote a book at the time, you got it published, you went to any publisher, and depending on the control of the government, I mean, during the Civil Wars, for instance, a lot of publications were out because there wasn't as much control over government, over publications, but in the 1660s, the period in which Stubb was living, if you wanted to publish something, you had to get permission from the government, the imprimatur, so to speak. And although there were lots of kind of you know underground publishers, but for something like this, which was extremely different, and very provocative, to really present a positive view about Islam from Islamic sources, it would have been unlikely that anybody would have wanted to publish it for him, especially because it was in English. Uh, in Latin, it would have meant that it would have stayed within a kind of a small highly specialized group of scholars in uh, and readers. In English, obviously, the intent would have been for a wider audience. So hey, I doubt that he would have been able to publish it. I, mean, I don't know, there was no evidence that he tried to publish it, but I doubt that it would have worked. So yeah, I mean, you know, all the other works that he, re- he wrote were published, uh, but as I say, the others did not have anything to do with the, you know, with, with the study of
0: Islam. Uh-huh. And so you you talk about how he was a very apt scholar and was good with languages and was well-read and had a really terrific memory. Do you, yeah. can, can you speculate on why he didn't learn Arabic? And is there any sense that that was something he thought might have been important?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I don't know why he would not have wanted to learn it. He did not learn, it, at least from the texts. He does not show any familiarity with either Arabic or Hebrew or any of the other languages that were necessary for any study of kind of Islam or Islam in the context of Christianity and Judaism. Uh, he could have done that at Oxford because he was attending the lectures of Pocock, uh, but he did not. and. I don't know why he didn't. Uh, and because all his references, everything that he examined and everything that he read was in Latin. Now, his Latin and Greek, according to his contemporaries, were, you know, he was the best. I mean, he was stops and that. So he was very comfortable with these languages. And I think he relied, and he did rely completely on them. Why he didn't study Arabic, that's a good question. I don't know. But this is,
0: this is also important, right? That he was examining material that was already available, and he was reformulating things in yeah. a new kind of way. So could you say something about that, how he was taking the extant the material and recasting it? Yeah, that I think
1: is his main kind of amazing kind of willingness to go beyond the contemporary kind of... You know hostility that was there endemic within within Christian society at the time, and to try he wanted to present a positive image. I mean, he had a kind of a position that he uh, he took, and there are two kind of you know two ways of looking at that. One is to to say that he wanted to show how much Islam was part of Christian and Judaic history, and that it was really part of the movement of monotheism from Judaism which in his view became corrupted that's the rise of Christianity which in his again in his view became corrupted and therefore the need for uh, for Islam as the final kind of uh, kind of religious revelation so there's that angle that you know he sense I think it was the way he he wanted to see that and he did in terms of the book. Uh, The other angle is, of course, the material that he had before him. And there was already material enough in the 17th century, but again, it was in Latin, where there were Arab historians that had been translated into Latin, and these were very interestingly medieval Christian Arab historians writing about, you know, the history of the world, in which, of course, the history of Islam would have taken quite a big, uh, would have been a big part. And in writing about the history of Islam, being Christians living in the Islamic world, one was in Egypt, one was in Syria, two in Syria, and these people were living there. So in a sense, their view of Islam was very much a kind of a, a contemporary view, and it was, to a large extent, a positive view. I mean, there was no kind of hostility given in, the, in a manner that the European tradition had. So here he looked at these and found that if these people are writing favorably about the rise of Islam and the Prophet of Islam, well... You know, these are people living there, they know the evidence by far better than we do. So that's the other side of his kind of originality, is that he kind of was able to see into these books what could, be, what could kind of translate into a new biography of the Prophet Muhammad. And in a sense, his book, once he kind of finishes with the first part, which is the study of Islam within the context and the evolution of Judaism and Christianity, which is like the first 50 pages of the manuscript. Then the second 100 pages of the manuscript is a history, a biography of Islam and of the Prophet. And the information in that is coming completely from these medieval Christian Arabic sources in
0: Latin. Uh, so one, one of his sort of reasons for wanting to undertake this kind of project you you write about is as a scholar that he sees this literature and people are getting things wrong and they're they're coming up with false understandings about how Islam was spread by the sword or whatnot. So could you say something about the the kind of um, projects he was trying to reclaim? And was he did he have any influential Muslim friends or teachers?
1: Uh, I doubt very, very, very strongly. I mean, there is absolutely no reference in any of his writing to any familiarity with Muslims. He, uh, you know, he would not have met Muslims in England. Uh, his professor, Edward Pocock, had lived in Aleppo, had kind of learned Arabic, mastered it indeed. So, he, you know, anything that you would have learned about, you know, the practical way of life in, an, in the Islamic world, would have been through Edward Pocock, through his professor. But he personally, as far as I could see, he did not have any access to, you know, persons in that respect. I mean, there may have been at the time some captives brought to England. There definitely were ambassadors visiting from North Africa. But he was kind of, you know, a man, he was not at the center of, commercial activities, let's say, in London, where he might have met such people. He was either in Oxford or in Bath. You know, these were off the beaten track uh, for for that kind of Muslim individual as an ambassador or an envoy or a commercial attaché. So, no, I don't think he had any friends. I think he had a project in mind to correct uh, the views about Islam in contemporary English society and, you know, by extension, European society, because, as I say, nobody else had done what he had done. And I think he just must have felt rather angry that, you know, here is all this material. Uh, We can see that there's a very different and much more positive positive, indeed a much more accurate portrait of Muhammad and the beginnings of Islam than anything we have in these Greek and Latin sources. Why is it that nobody kind of pays any attention to them? Now, is it because nobody knows Latin as much? So maybe I, Henry Stubb, I'm going to do that in English, and you know, present it as the kind of a, an English version for an English reader about the beginnings of Islam. So yes, he has a project; it's very clear in his mind, uh, and as I say, he does it by bringing in this material and saying, you know, here it is, and he's you know all the time he's doing that. He's referencing all his Information. I mean, he's trying to tell us that, you know, this is really not me just speaking off the cuff. This is all based on my scholarship. These are all pieces of information derived from you know, the top scholars in England and Western Europe at the time. I mean, the other big scholar was Hottinger in Switzerland. And, you know, these two scholars, along with, with his own, with uh, uh, Edward Pocock, I mean, these were top scholars in this field who were still mm-hmm. writing. So he's saying, you know, I'm getting all the information from them. So it's not as if I'm inventing it, and they themselves are respectable scholars basing their information on Arabic sources, Islamic uh, Islamic and
0: Christian Arabic sources. And, and so what, what languages was he working with besides Greek and Latin and English?
1: That's it. Uh, I mean, these are the languages that he's using all the time. I mean, he's writing in English, sometimes he Quotes, long passages in Latin. Uh, the Greek elements are very, very brief. Unfortunately, the first manuscript that survives, which is in 1701, so around kind of 30 years or just under 30 years after his death, the, the scribe did not seem to know Greek, so the transcriptions were not very good. The Latin is better, but as I say, he's copying from books that he was using. Uh, So it's like, you know, you can think of a man sitting in his, you know, in his house or in his study, surrounded by all these books. And we have actually a list of all the books that survived after his death because they were sold. So they were kind of listed and auctioned off. And many of the books that he mentions in his notes were books that he seemed to have had in his study. And, of course, he would have gone to the Bodleian to get some books. He would have gone to London. So, I mean, he would have had access to all these books there. But these are the two languages. Working nearly always with Latin, because the writings about Islam were in Latin. Very little was being written in Greek, simply because Latin was by far more the common language of intellectual discourse at the time than Greek was.
0: So... Before we start talking about the content of his text, you have this really nice quote from page 46 of your book that I'd like to read, where you say that Stubb was a physician, and in his last years he seemed to have been a successful one. And so as he treated the maladies of patients, he turned to treat the malady of ignorance, which he diagnosed, as he would have a disease, through careful examination of symptoms. So I think here you're you know, this is just a section that I found where you're emphasizing that he has this project where he sees this kind of scholarship that hasn't been taking full account of things, and you relate it to his occupation as a physician. And you talk about that a little bit more in the book as well. So could you say something about how he sees his, his project about early Islam as having connections with his life as a medical doctor?
1: Uh, yeah, that kind of was interesting because one of the books that he also mentions frequently—I mean, not ones that are contemporary by either Pocock uh, or Hottinger—was a book by Epiphanius, who was a kind of fifth-century fifth uh, Christian writer who described all the what he called all the heresies that were inherent in Christianity in you know in that period of time. And Epiphanius, you know called his book the kind of medicine box that, in a sense, he wrote that book uh, in order to uh, to treat all these, what he viewed as diseases in Christianity, and in order to basically kind of confirm an orthodox position that he had. So I tended to see that this is exactly, and as I say, stop admire them very much. I mean, he quotes them quite frequently. And so my view is that, you know, Stubb must have seen himself the same way, that he he also saw himself as a physician approaching this malady of ignorance. Because, you know, everything that was published about Islam, I mean, every possible poem, book, uh, you know, whatever there was, play about Islam, were always negative. I mean, you know, there was nothing that an average reader of English could have had access to which would have presented an alternative view. And I imagine Stubb kind of getting rather frustrated with that, especially that, as I say, he is working with a very, very careful scholar who introduces him and shows him the sources in Latin and kind of, you know, must have explained, you know, what the historical background was, which must have, for Stubb, must have, you know, became the became source of, of annoyance. You know, why aren't we looking at an alternative view? Why aren't we searching for a kind of a more accurate perspective or a more accurate history of Islam than the one that is kind of paraded around in all the publications around us? So that's what I see that this kind of his scholarly work on the beginnings of Islam and his medical profession kind of came together, is that he saw himself really as curing, curing the disease of ignorance. And in a way, it is. I mean, had it been published, it would have created quite a stir because it, you know, it was based on scholarly information. It's not just somebody kind of concocting theory. He is kind of referencing every possible point that he makes. And the references are going back to the top European scholars of uh, of Islam. So, it would have been quite, uh, you know, quite a book for average readers to have seen in English, because it would have really destabilized. Uh, it would have made them feel very uncomfortable about not only their views about Islamic history, but also about the beginnings of Islam, because he links that to the kind of the heresies of Christianity, and which Christianity in, in some turn also in terms of the kind of heresies of Judaism, so he sees Islam as a kind of purification movement from these two religions. Into that, so a book like that would have been would have made a lot of people angry, but you know, as he would, might have said, you know, a medicine might be something that is unpleasant, but here it is if you want to be cured. So I think that's how he viewed this book as a kind of a cure for that level of ignorance that was you know predominant, except. Within the you know scholarly level,
0: right? And so you mentioned that he he's interested in this question of how Islam relates to Christianity and Judaism, and that's actually the way he he begins his work, right? So could you could you tell us about the the structure of his of his work, and also just in terms of your own process of putting the manuscripts together? How did you how did you decide on how to break the chapters and identify the change in topics.
1: Okay, I mean the I would worked with the very first surviving manuscript, which was not in his own hand, it's not an autograph. It was in 1701. But so it's like what, 25 years after his death. But there was also there were there were two other manuscripts of the period, you know, between his death and the beginning of the 18th century. So earlier manuscripts which only and that was very interesting which only focused on the Islamic unit. So the way I interpreted that in my introduction is to say he started by simply working on Islam. So, as I say, reading all this material in Latin, he decided, I'm going to write the history of the beginnings of Islam, the life of the Prophet Muhammad, and to do that in English. And my feeling is that he did, he wrote that, and then he circulated. And Because the second kind of manuscript of that period shows him kind of, it's as if he's responding to questions, to criticisms, to angry comments. And so he kind of continues his investigation of that. And then what I think he must have done, so that would have been the first stage of his work, is basically to focus on the history of Islam, to maybe show it to readers, friends, or enemies, I don't know, get some feedback and kind of continue to work. Again, all of it kind of purely scholarly research. And then I think his own personal perspective is that, okay, let's situate Islam in the context of Judaism and Christianity. Why did it appear? What kind of were the motivations? What kind of was the context of that? And that's where the book by Epiphanius, the one I mentioned earlier, uh, comes in very handy, because Epiphanius is writing, as I said, in the 5th century AD, and it's a, it's a wonderful book if one is interested in that kind of stuff because he's listing heresies that were there all around the kind of Christian world, particularly in the regions of the Middle East, in the Arabian Peninsula, as well as in the Middle East and Egypt, etc. I mean, all the Christian regions that he knew, you know, Greece, Syria, uh, that region as well. And he's just listing all these heresies. And what then Stubb does is just Puts two and two together, is that look at this vast range of heresy that was that had evolved and developed in Christian history, and then look at how Islam emerged from within that geography, with the you know with the the kind of the essential nature of monotheistic revelation, you know, devoid of all these heretical infringements. So that's how he therefore I think at the end decided to frame his own to start with Judaism and how it evolved into Christianity, the kind of divisions and the kind of breakaway movements that emerge within that develops in Judaism, leading to the emergence of Christianity. And then in Christianity, of course, he always says, well, we really don't have any sources except, you know, the Gospels and the, and the Book of Acts. And, you know, these how reliable are they as historical documents? I mean, he's, he's not questioning them theologically but he's questioning them, you know, historically. And then he moves from there into the early, the material that's available about early Christianity, which is from the 4th century on, from Constantine on. Now, there's a lot of material, and he's familiar with it all. As I say, he reads and remembers (laughs) amazingly well. And he says, look at that. It's all full of conflicts, full of heresies, full of movements that seem to be unorthodox. That's why you have all these councils, one council after another. In which there is an attempt on the part of the state, the empire, to you know impose one shape, one form of Christianity. So he says, well, okay, that was happening, but as a result of all this kind of miasma of, of movements and and agreements and disagreements and conflict and disputation, you know, finally there was this you know other movement that emerged, the prophetic movement of. Prophet Muhammad, which kind of came out of all that, but came out with the revelation that had, you know, that was devoid of all these uh, of all these accretions, and so that is what he does, you know, in the first fifty pages. It's a very dense kind of historical study of you know Judaism to Christianity and to, into Islam,
0: based nearly completely on Greek and Latin sources. So. In general, his project is iconoclastic and controversial oh, and unusual. And you also talk about some of the specific things that he he questions in terms of how Islam is spread by the sword. Um, things about Ali, for example. So, could you say could you say more about what are the, some of the specific things that he discusses that that are controversial?
1: Yeah, uh, I think the. The most kind of interestingly controversial I mean, not controversial necessarily but different, I mean as I say he's really, as you said correctly, he's kind of classic. he's out there to kind of break icon, the first was basically his view of Jesus and uh, he has a long section on Jesus in terms of how he sees him through the Islamic tradition and that was fascinating, I mean the fact that he's willing to see Jesus through the Islamic kind of perspective and of course Jesus through Islam is a the greatest prophet until the until the arrival of Muhammad. So, I mean, he has a very, very high position. So he recognizes that, and he presents that rather strongly, which, of course, would not have been well taken by his readers, you know, very pious and very devout Christians. So that was one thing, is the view of Jesus that he presents. The second is what I have thought was still, and I still can't figure it out, the immense role he gives for Ali, uh, the cousin of Muhammad, uh, we have really a very long chapter uh, and extended to another about Ali and the role he played in the dissemination of Islam. There is no question at all in his mind Muhammad is the prophet and Ali is the kind of promoter, he's the defender. And he presents him in various kind of uh, situations where he shows him as really kind of standing up for the teachings of, of the Quran and of Muhammad. So That, as I say, is unusual because in the 17th century, English and indeed continental writings about Ali would have been associated with Iran or their understanding of Persia and would have been kind of to some extent combined with their understanding or misunderstanding of Shi'ism. He does not bring the issue of Shi'ism at all. He doesn't delve into the contemporary kind of, you know, Ottoman versus uh, Safavid kind of conflict, etc. He doesn't bother with that. He simply looks at it historically that the Prophet emerged with the revelation of the Quran and that Ali, his cousin, was really his first and strongest promoter. And as I say, that is very unusual. I mean, maybe others might have said it in a sentence or two. He just kind of spends a lot of time on it. And my speculation is that His teacher, Pocock, had a copy, had a manuscript of the sayings of Ali, which were not available yet in Latin. So he must have read to him or translated to him because he didn't publish them. uh, these sayings. And perhaps from that, he kind of derived that perspective on Ali. The third thing was, yeah, the issue of, uh, you know, the traditional commonplace that you know, Islam was spread by the sword. And he makes a very clear distinction that, you know, as an empire he uses that term although it's inaccurate, as an empire, yes. It did you know, empires are not made by by anything other than the sword, but not as religion. And his examples are exactly those medieval Christian writers whom he's citing all the time. So you know these are the people who are living there. So Islam did not spread by converting forcibly the people's uh, which the armies conquered. Yes, they conquered and they created a new polity, but it did not necessarily uh, you know, impose its own religious views on the kind of Christian or Jewish minorities within that polity. Whether that was a point he was trying to make uh, in England at the time, which was trying to impose Anglicanism with really a very forceful persecution of Catholics and nonconformists. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that that is an issue I still need to work on. But it, there could be that kind of angle that he had in mind, expect, that there is some kind of relevance to that, that you can have a very strong policy without having to convert your population and look at this now.
0: And the final, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, please. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I just remember the final point that I think was, to me, again, most of all these are very astounding because nobody else has said that. nobody says anything about this business of spreading an empire but not a religion and of course you know he's aware of what's happening in the americas he's aware of what's happening in the colonies so he says hey you know and he says that very bluntly He says you know let's not kind of look at the others let's look at ourselves how you know how the slave trade we have how we you know we don't even want to convert our slaves in the Americas, just because if we combat them, we, we have to release them. So, I mean, he is very kind of very blunt about the fact that, you know, in his own time, it's his own quote-unquote European Christian society that is imposing its, uh, its religion on those whom it has vanquished. And in that, as I say, the final amazing point is this long passage that he has about the Quran. Now, He praises it in a manner that nobody else had praised it up till then, or, I don't know, for for a long time after that. And it was very interesting, because, as I said, he couldn't read it in Arabic. Now, if you read it in Arabic, I can understand the admiration. And whatever English translation, there was an English translation, appeared in 1649, it was a very, very bad translation, and he says, he says, it's very bad. The Latin translation, which there had been no other, then the one that appeared in uh, 1543, that was also bad. That was not good. So, I mean, it's not as if he had access to the original text and he could speak of personal kind of conviction after reading it, because it is really an amazingly powerful text. He just, I don't know, again, maybe it was Pocock. Maybe Pocock showed him the kind of the, the imaginative, you know, the incredible kind of quality of the text, and he stuck to it because he has passages about the Quran that, is say, nobody else had said, and nobody else would say for a long
0: time. Positive. Right? So, very so given all these ways that he contrasts with um, the way other people are looking at Islam, was there any kind of tradition that developed that accused Stubb of being like a closet Muslim or like a secret convert or something like that?
1: Uh, not afterwards. I mean, I don't find any references to him as being a closet Muslim. No. I mean, he was buried in a church in the cathedral, so clearly, right. nobody in, in any way suspected him of that in his own time. And there are no references later. No, not as far as I could. Yeah.
0: I and, can. He, and he never denies being Christian, right? That's the subtext: is that he's he is Christian, but he's just self-critical of his country and sort of how religious authorities have developed. Uh, yes
1: and no. Yes, in the sense, exactly what you said. No, if you take Christianity as being a religion, which, of course, 95% of Christians view it that way, as a religion of Trinitarian belief, you have to believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he was hesitant about that. Now, he does not write explicitly in the manner, let's say, John Milton writes. And again, John Milton was his contemporary. I don't think they knew each other. Uh there is contemporary now John Milton writes a text which again he doesn't publish, he writes it in Latin, in which, you know, it's clear that his his uh, theological position was anti Trinitarian. He did not believe in this business of the church Now, in his critique of Christianity in his book, Stubb you know, say points in that direction. And sometimes you can say that, you know, he's really talking like a Unitarian. He may well have been. But as I said, when he died, he was still buried in, you know, any cathedral, which meant that to his society, his community, he was still seen to be part of the Christian, indeed Anglican communion of that time. But he definitely kind of, you know, was a Christian, but also with that kind of proviso that maybe Christianity doesn't need to have Trinitarianism at its uh, at its center, and so then you might say, well, that means he's not a Christian. That depends, uh, you know, how you want to
0: view that. Right. And, and so given that his work wasn't published during his lifetime, at what point did his work start to circulate widely and begin to cause a stir?
1: It did not. And as I say, he was being read, he was being quoted. Uh, and I mentioned that in the book, just the examples that there are. The manuscript itself, the fact that it survives in five copies, means that there were people who were eager to, uh, to copy it and, of course, to elaborate on it. I mean, that's a problem with copying, if not there. But it then disappears, and, you know, you don't find references to it. Uh, I was tempted, I tried to find if whether Carlyle in the 19th century, who kind of, to some extent, says things that would resonate with Stubb, although Stubb is still by far ahead of him, then Carlyle in the 19th century, I couldn't make the lick. I couldn't see that Carlyle would have read or there is ever any evidence that he would have read it. And, you know, it's up till Carlyle, up till the mid-19th century that, you know, again, the beginning of a much more serious approach to the study of Islam and its history uh, begins to take place. So in terms of a stir, as I say, he kind of doesn't make much of a stir in his lifetime. As I say, had the book been published, it would have
0: generated enormous enormous uh, reactions, but it wasn't. So, Nabil, in terms of contemporary scholars, particularly in the West, in the 21st century, what what do you think Henry Stubb has, has to teach us?
1: A number of things, first is, you know, what he did was to go back to the sources, And although he didn't know Arabic, he went back to Arabic sources and translation. Basically, that's what he felt he could rely on in terms of any reconstruction of early Islam, is that you have to go to the sources that were written from within Islamic history rather than extraneously to them. So I think that was a very important, and that's his originality, and that's his courage, I think, to have completely ignored what everybody else had been saying, and Everybody else had not been relying on the Arabic sources and for him to say, this is where I go. And I think he has one line where he says, you know, if these historians, the Arab, in his case, the Arab Christian historians do not, you know, say such a fact or kind of accept such a position, then I don't accept it either. So basically, getting back to the native voice in terms of any kind of historiography about the early Islam. And second of all, I think in a larger context, particularly in the context of European history as well, is to kind of look at the context of the rise of Islam from within the scholarship that was available there at the time in other Semitic languages. And I think that was important too for him. Again, he didn't know them, these languages, but he relied on very, very able scholars who had translated and used them uh, and as I mentioned, you know, basically Pocock and, uh, and others on the continent were really the, scholar, the kind of Semitic scholars who knew all these languages, Syriac, Hebrew, Aramaic, and were able to integrate that into the kind of larger picture or constructing the larger picture of the rise of Islam. And, you know, ultimately the methodology of, you know, proper, the kind of higher criticism of biblical scholarship. Now, that was already beginning in the 17th century with, again, mainly scholars on the continent, Uh, but basically to start looking back and you know, to see where uh, texts in the biblical tradition fall in terms of their relationship to historical facts and historical kind of events, and again to try and do the same thing with the Islamic texts. So I think going back to the context, going back to the original languages, and going back to a wider scope of, of languages, and wider scope of historical perspective uh, than at the time it had been done. So I think that's his main contribution.
0: Yeah, and I think so many of these, the questions that his scholarship raises are still so timely today. So I think that it's, it's really important that you're able to make a lot of these connections, and I think they really stand out to a reader as well who has any kind of familiarity with some of the challenges Facing contemporary scholars of Islam, so thank you for for saying something about that. So be, before we we part ways, could you tell us a little bit about some current uh, and future projects that you're working on, whether they're connected or not so much to your recent book?
1: Uh, the book I'm just finishing, which is forthcoming in kind of in March next year, is an edition, abridgment, and translation of a Moroccan traveler who went, I think the first Arab traveler in the early modern period, who goes throughout the Mediterranean down into uh, Arabia and then back into North Africa. He visits kind of Spain, Sicily, Malta, uh, what else, Naples, then goes to the uh, Ottoman Empire, so goes to Anatolia, goes down to uh, Syria, Palestine, down the way to Arabia, and then returns Uh, and sails from Acre uh, to Cyprus and then to Tunisia and back to Morocco. This kind of journey, and, you know, somebody who wrote about it, or maybe others have done it, but this guy wrote three kind of texts, three kind of really extensive uh, travelogues. And so what I wanted to do is kind of, you know, as there is now tremendous interest in the study of the Mediterranean, to see how really, as far as I could figure out, the only Arab writer who did experience and write, and I emphasize write, because maybe others have said did, who wrote about the experience of the Mediterranean, European as well as Middle Eastern, uh, Muslim, and Christian as well, and in a sense kind of covered the whole range. So, I'm it's what he wrote was rather extensive, so what I'm doing is abridging and then translating Preparing an introduction, and of course annotating uh, the you know the text so to to make it you know clearer for the for the contemporary reader. So that's kind of more or less finished. I'm just about finalizing everything I'm doing. I have to submit the manuscript at the end of the month, so hopefully you know I'll be done with that then.
0: Well, that sounds like an exciting project, and I'm sure our listeners will look forward to looking at it when it comes out in March. Do you have can you tell us the publisher? Publisher is Rutledge. And the name we have, I think tentatively, is an
1: Arab ambassador in the Mediterranean world. And then his name, actually, Muhammad ibn Ottoman and miknasi And the dates are 1779 to 1788. Uh, so it's very important because, again, it's just before the Napoleonic invasion of you know Egypt and Palestine. And so in a sense, what you get really is the last grand overview of the Mediterranean before European powers begin to take over, you know, chiefly Britain and France. You know, this is just before that, and so, in a sense, it's the last grand view of it. After that, we're going to get very, very different experiences in the 19th century. So he's, I would say, the very last uh, early modern writer and the only modern early modern writer Who kind of described the Mediterranean in such detail? So yeah, we'll
0: see how it comes out. Well, wonderful! Thank you again so much for sharing your time with us today, and we'll look forward to your future work. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Nabil Matar. Professor of English at the University of Minnesota about his exciting new book, Henry Stubb and the Beginnings of Islam, The Original and Progress of Mohammedanism, published by Columbia University Press in 2014. Thanks for listening.